0: I want to thank you for listening today. If you have not subscribed to our podcast, please do so and feel free to rate and review us as well. If you live nearby and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come visit us here at Fellowship Bible Church in Jacksonville, Texas. You can connect with us by calling or texting CONNECT to 903 586 6520 if you would like to support the ministry here at fellowship bible church we would greatly appreciate that as well to give one time or on a regular basis you can text give to 903-586-6520 if you live a ways away we hope you would find a good bible believing and preaching church in your area to join and
1: serve in and support thanks again for joining us We hope you have a great week. Brock Turner was a Stanford University student who was found guilty
0: of sexually assaulting an unconscious woman in 2015.
1: He served a grand total of three months for his crime.
0: Michelle Dauber, a Stanford University law professor, said, I think there's a long history of the legal system not handling sexual violence and domestic violence correctly, particularly if the offender is privileged in some way. For example, being a private university student like Brock Turner at Stanford. After the extremely light sentence, there was outrage at Aaron Persky, the judge in Turner's trial. And Michelle Dauber led a successful recall effort to remove Judge Persky from the bench. Clearly, quite a few people in Santa Clara County agreed that Aaron Persky was an unjust judge. We don't like injustice, do we? We feel strongly that wicked people should be rightly and justly judged for the evil that they do. This morning we're going to begin a short series we're calling The Gospel According to Nahum. And this short book is about God's righteous judgment against evil, wickedness, and salvation for those who are His. Nahum is one of the least read and least studied books in the Bible. um, Principally because it concerns God's righteous judgment against the wicked nation of Assyria, and in particular, the city of Nineveh. Nahum is Hebrew poetry, and this type of scripture is full of symbolic language, metaphors, word pictures, and expressions of feeling. So the form and style is similar to other Hebrew poetry, such as the Psalms. And Nahum is a unique book in scripture because the entire book is a vision from God. But it's full of the gospel message of mercy and salvation, the greatness and patience of God, and wrathful judgment. These are all parts of the gospel. The events in this book take place between 663 B.C. and 612 B.C. Assyria at this time was a superpower in the world. And Israel was a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom had fallen to Assyria about 100 years before Nahum. And although it can't be confirmed, some scholars think that he grew up in a small town on the Galilee um, under the oppression of the Assyrians. If you remember that God sent Jonah to warn the Nineveh, Right? Um, he, he sent him to warn them that if they did not repent, he would destroy them in 40 days. And I'm sure you remember that Jonah was not happy that God warned Nineveh. And he was not happy that they did repent because he really disliked them. And why he disliked them is a very important piece of information to understanding Nahum. The Assyrians were notorious for brutal treatment of other nations. These guys were incredibly wicked and vicious. They would routinely torture people they conquered in ways that would make Hitler and ISIS look like Mickey Mouse. The Assyrians applied a scorched earth policy in in warfare And vile practices of their idol worship demanded spoils of war. They were brutal and ruthless and were the very personification of evil, and they were proud of it. So much so that the kings of Assyria would decorate their palaces with carved reliefs of what they would do to the people and nations that they conquered their revolting actions are definitely R-rated, and I'll spare you the gory details and summarize it by saying that the piles of human heads and disembodied bodies that they left in their wake indicate the atrocities these guys committed. And the Assyrians used these tactics on the Israelites. And after reading just a little bit about them, um, I can easily understand why Jonah did not want to warn them. He just wanted God to utterly wipe them out. Nahum, like Jonah, is one of the 12 minor prophets in the Old Testament. And they aren't called minor because they're unimportant. They're called minor because they're short. Okay? Um, this particular book only has three chapters and is one of the shortest books in the Bible. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1. You can find this, flip to the end of the Old Testament, and then flip back a little ways.
1: If you get to Jonah, you've turned back too far. Okay, Help you find it. When Jonah first preached repentance to the city of Nineveh, the people responded and were spared.
0: But only a century later, they had returned to their wickedness, and God spoke through the prophet Nahum. This time they would not repent. However, much of the prophecy that's in Nahum is directed to Israel and Judah. And they would rejoice at the good news of Nineveh's coming destruction. I mean, uh, yeah, Nineveh's coming destruction. So we're going to look at two aspects in this first chapter of Nahum. The first one, the Lord is great in his judgment. The Lord is great in his judgment. Verse 1 tells us about the book, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. This is God's written word, and it's good that it's written down because we are prone to forget. The ESV says oracle here, but that Hebrew word could also be translated burden. Um, this word from God in this vision was a burden
1: to Nahum. Um, it was risky to share it the assyrians were in power and this
0: vision from god lays out his judgment against them and he's going to use nahum to tell them these are very bad guys as i said and they delighted in treating people cruelly and nahum would be square in their sights it was surely a burden for nahum but like nahum God calls on us to share hard news with those in our lives. He instructs us to share the whole gospel truth with others, and sometimes they may not appreciate it.
1: But no one here is facing what Nahum faced. We act like it's a life or death
0: proposition to share the truth of coming judgment. But for believers in North America, it's really only a little ridicule or or maybe some rejection at the very worst, right? We must be prepared to tell the whole truth, folks. Paul tells us why when he spoke to the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20, verse 26 and 27, when he said, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Clearly, we're responsible to tell the whole truth, the easy stuff and the hard stuff. Otherwise, Paul says we'll bear some responsibility for not telling that hard truth. And there's certainly some hard stuff in Nahum. Verse 2 is arguably the key verse for the entire book of Nahum. Let's look at it. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The first part of this, let's talk about, we've heard we have a hard time understanding how God can be jealous. We view jealousy with a negative connotation. But God's jealousy must be understood from the position of his honor. He alone is worthy of loyal love by His creation, as shown in the First and Second Commandments. Exclusive worship is the motivation behind God describing Himself as jealous. Alistair Begg has a helpful explanation of this that I'm going to put up on the screen. Believer, your Lord is very jealous of your love. Did He choose you? He cannot bear that you should choose another. Did he buy you with his own blood? He cannot endure that you should think you are your own or that you belong to this world. He loved you with such a love that he would not remain in heaven without you. And he would sooner die than have you perish. He cannot endure that anything should stand between your heart's love and himself. God is jealous for your love. And Scripture says, Describes jealousy, God's jealousy, in reference to his intense desire to protect and defend the honor of his covenant relationship with his people. For example, if a man was pursuing my wife, would it be wrong or right that I be jealous? That I be jealous for her. It would be right that I be jealous for her. She and I are in covenant marriage. And anyone who seeks to harm that relationship is my enemy and her enemy. And I'll be right to defend her and our relationship. That's what's going on here in verse 2. It says, God is wrathful twice and avenging three times. God is an avenger and he takes vengeance on his adversaries. Well, You might say, well... I'm not an enemy of God. I'm not against God. I do my thing. He does His thing. But the hard truth is that living your light apart from God makes you an enemy of God. There's no middle ground.
1: You either worship Him as God or you don't. And if you truly worship Him... If you don't truly worship Him, then God
0: defines that inaction as rebellion. He made everything. He holds everything together by the power of His might. The fact that you have air in your lungs and your heart is beating is because of Him. And when you live like you're owed these things, rejecting the truth of who He is, then you are living like you are God, putting yourself in His place, And for that, God is jealous. There's only one God, and He is rightly wrathful against rebellion to the truth. And at some point, at some point, He will take vengeance on those who are opposed to the truth of who He is. But look at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord has every right to be angry and take vengeance, but He's patient. He's patient because He's a loving God. Second Peter tells us that God is patient toward you, not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. There's an aspect of this that we really like, but there's another aspect we may not really like. God is patient with the wicked that they may come. This was Jonah's problem, right? He didn't want God's mercy on that wicked city and that wicked nation. He wanted God to judge them now.
1: But God was patient toward them. And this time of slowness was hard for Judah
0: and long for them as the wicked kings of Assyria cruelly oppressed the Israelites. You see, God has love even for His enemies. After all, He created them that they be in right relationship with Him. But there comes a point where that patience will end if they continue to reject Him. He will by no means clear the guilty, it says. He's patient to forgive those who repent, But to those who don't, God is merciful and he does not judge us immediately, but he patiently draws us, calling us by his spirit, calling us by his word. But we are responsible for how we respond.
1: If we remain his adversaries, then his wrath remains on us.
0: God has provided a way for us in the person and work of Christ where the wrath of God is placed on God the Son and His righteousness is placed on us. But this only happens when we turn from our sin and place our faith in Christ alone and God will graciously forgive. But there's something else in verse 3 I want you to see. I want you to bring your attention. Look again at verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Stop right there. Great in power. We sang song after song after song this morning about how great God is. It's true. And chapter 1 of Nahum is focused on the greatness of God in His righteous jealousy, vengeance, patience, mercy, and power. Repetition is extremely important in Scripture. And I want to point out something very significant that you may not notice In verse 3, God, I mean, Nahum declares God is great, but he also emphasizes the greatness of God by the repetition of God's name in chapter 1. Ten times in chapter 1, Nahum uses the word, the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D. And you may know that, that Lord, in all uppercase, is Yahweh in Hebrew. But did you know that Lord, Yahweh, is both a name and a response. In Exodus three fourteen, God told Moses, "I am," which in Hebrew is
1: a-yah. and that's God's name. I am, ayah, Yahweh,
0: Yahweh means He is. God says, "I am," and God's people say, "He is." God says, "I am," and we say, "Lord." He says I am and we say he is. I am Yahweh. I am the Lord.
1: Ayah Yahweh, Ayah Yahweh. A response to God. Over and over he declares he is.
0: And when we confess him as Lord, right? Confess him as Lord, we declare He is. And using dramatic, poetic imagery, Nahum, in Nahum, he describes, he continues to emphasize the greatness of God. Look again, continuing in verse 3, The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in, his way is a whirl, in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Nahum declares that Yahweh is omnipotent and regardless of your power, he has all power. His ways are overpowering like nature can be overpowering. When we, see a whirl- when we hear whirlwind, we may be tempted to think about like a little, sw- a, little whirl- a little swirl of dust out in the parking lot. But what Nahum is describing here is an F5 tornado. Nothing stands up to it everything is flattened and laid bare god's way is in the whirlwind of the storm when i hear a tornado warning i get scared i know the power of that kind of storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet those incredible powerful storms are just the dust of his feet this is a an andromorphic description using describing god as a man okay god is not a man Um, and we can't comprehend how much greater than man he is. But God, through Nahum, gives us this visual, something physical, so that we can better understand something in the spiritual realm. God takes a step, the dust rises around his feet, and it's an inescapable, overwhelming storm to his enemies. No matter the size of the adversary, no matter the size of the army, even the dust of his feet will effortlessly blow them away. We get in the picture? He continues these pictures in verse 4 through 6. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who could stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Nahum continues by describing a kind of a reversal of creation here. God created the seas with a word, but with a word of rebuke, the seas and all the rivers will dry up. Bashan and Carmel were well-known places in Lebanon that were rich with extremely lush and luxuriant uh, vegetation. But instead of God creating this luxuriant life with his word, with the word, the plenty and provision of Bashan and Carmel would just wither like a blue. He describes the mountains that tower over us But before the Lord they'll shake, and the hills will melt. The earth and everyone who dwells on it will heave and collapse. Who could possibly stand before the omnipotent Creator God? None. None can stand before Him. We're fearful when storms come. We're fearful when droughts come. When storms come. When earthquakes and rocks crack. All these were made with an instant in God's Word. And just a word from He is. They'll end. Who could stand before His indignation of their rebelliousness? Who could possibly endure the heat of His anger? His wrath pours out like fire and rocks are broken into pieces like volcanic activity. The earth heaves and breaks open and heat and fire pour out before Him. This is the Lord. This is who he is. And this is great comfort for those who are his, his strength. And not one of those who are his will ever be lost. As we saw in verse 2, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. This is the great and saving wrath of God against anyone who seeks to destroy those who are His. This all-powerful God in covenant with His people. The Lord is both wrathful against His enemies and He is avenging for His people. That's our next point. The Lord is great in His salvation. Look at verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. The Lord is good. Yes, he is good. good. But some modern readers would would question a book like Nahum and say, this violence of God against wickedness is not ethical. And it runs against their modern philosophical categories. The problem is that they try to define uh, good according to their own
1: impulses. They have no real concept of a holy God. God himself
0: is the definition of good. Everything is defined by who he is. In Luke 18, 19, Jesus said, there is none good except God alone. Even their idea of good is wrong. (laughs) Humanity constantly overlooks a wrongful thought unacted on. Overlook so-called harmless sin. They fail to see that all sin is against God and His holiness. And they fail to recognize the price of all sin is the same. And God sets the standard for good and evil. God is judge, and He will judge all according to His holiness. The book of Nahum really challenges deeply held assumptions about the nature of goodness. Goodness is holiness. But Scripture here confirms that the Lord is good and He is a stronghold. He's a refuge in a day of trouble. And that obviously connects with a Savior. Right? And Jesus is our Savior and He is our refuge. He is our stronghold. In John seventeen twelve, Jesus prayed to the Lord. He said... He has guarded all who the Father gave him, and none of them is lost except the Son of Destruction. Jesus is a protector of all who were his. And he's an avenger of all those who are not. And he knows the difference of whose are his and whose are not. And that thought should cause us to examine ourselves. Shouldn't it? The, um, this omnipotent God of verse 2 through 6 will utterly destroy and utterly save. And being omniscient, being all knowing, God knows who are His and who are not. He knows. And those who are not are His enemies and he will bring salvation to those who are his, and he will bring destruction to those who are not. Look at verse eight. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. Nahum is pointing out the futility of opposing God with images of an overflowing flood in nature. I can't help but think about those videos I saw of the tsunami in Malaysia. Right? In 2004, a towering wall of water and unstoppable destruction. With even greater power than a tsunami, okay? God will overwhelm his adversaries and he will end them. And they will have no recourse, no way to recover, no round two. He will pursue his enemies to the darkest places. There's no place to hide, there's no place to run, and no place to flee to. He will completely destroy his enemies and provide total salvation for those who are his own. Look at verse 9 and 10. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. Plotting and planning against the Lord is totally ineffective. He knows every thought, every action, and he will completely end his enemies, and they cannot rise again. If you've ever had a burn pile, we're in East Texas. If you've ever had a burn pile with thorns in it, when that fire gets to the thorns, it's like whoosh, goes up like gasoline. Or if you've if you got a dry field, just a little bit of, a, of wind and fire in it will just spread like crazy. Nahum compares the plotting of his enemies to that of a stumbling, senseless drunk. Their highest and best thinking is worthless and completely ineffective. It's inefect, ineffective against the Lord and his salvation. Look at verse 11. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. The Lord, addressing the Ninevites, calls out their king and tells them, Your plotting is worthless. Your plans will come to nothing. Your counsel is worthless against the salvation of the Lord. No matter the adversary, the Lord will prevail. Look at verse 12. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Stop right there. The prophet proclaims that the Lord says though they have a mighty army and they are at full strength and fully trained, they'll be cut down and pass away. I'm sure the Israelites couldn't help but think back to the Egyptian army, right? Coming after them as they were freed from captivity and they were terrified at that coming
1: army. And the Lord ended them. Utterly. When God is the salvation, when God is the salvation, who's
0: going to stop him? Nobody. Nothing. Chapter 1 ends with a word from God to Judah, which begs a question. How is it that the Assyrians oppressed the people of God to begin with? Look at the rest of verse 12, and notice it switches to the first person. The Lord says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Over and over in Scripture we've read, we read warnings by prophets um, for um, the people of Israel to turn from idolatry and to keep themselves apart from following the nations around them. In your reading this week, you'll look at Deuteronomy 30. 15 to 20, where God told them through Moses that set before them was life and death, blessing and cursing. They were to keep their hearts from evil, and God warned them through the prophets that if they turned from following him, he would use their enemies in judgment and cause them to return to him, cause them to come back. That was the affliction here, and it's discipline. God brought discipline and affliction, and he tells them he'll afflict them no more. Again, this is contrary to modern thinking. How can he be good if he's afflicting them? But good parents know that children need correcting. They need disciplining. Otherwise, the children will not learn that there's consequences for bad decisions. There are. There's consequences. They make a choice, and there's Consequences for those choices. Moses made it clear there's a choice. There's a choice between blessing and cursing. There's nothing in between there. You see, there's not a third option. And God tells them that the discipline, this affliction is over, and he reassures the people that although they've been punished for their sin, he will no longer use the Assyrians to afflict them. Look at the salvation that the Lord promises in 13. And now I will break his yoke from off of you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord will break off the Assyrian yoke and the shackles of slavery and bondage. And they will be free from the brutal oppression. But God's promise to end Assyrian affliction did not mean that he would never, they would never again be punished for disobedience. As a matter of fact, just a few years after Nahum's prophecy, the Babylonians would sack Jerusalem. And bring them into exile but god's going to judge assyria and he will use babylon to do it and nahum closes chapter one with a word from god directly to the assyrian king in verse 14 the lord has given commandment about you no more shall your name be perpetuated from the house of your gods i will cut off the carved image and the metal image and i will make your grave for you are vile God is sending a message not just to this evil empire, but to the king of Assyria. Most likely, Banipal, who was historically the last king of Assyria. And his royal line ended, and he was sent to his grave. The Lord holds nations accountable, and he holds their leaders accountable. And the end of the line has come for the Assyrian nation and for their king. You see, every decree of the Lord is Sure and this decree would come to pass as well. Now you might say, in conclusion, you might say, well, Ron, that was a great history lesson, but so what? What's that had to do with me? Well, first I wanna say here that the interpretation of this passage is not for nationalism. While God holds nations and leaders accountable, the interpretation for us is a whole lot closer to home. And it might surprise you. See, if you've not placed your faith in Christ, then you are the Assyrians in this passage. Our slightest sin is against holy God, and God sees all the sin the same. All the vengeance of that crushing storm and melting wrath of omnipotent Yahweh is against sinners and none is righteous, no, not one. He will by no means clear the guilty. But there's something else here too. Remember Brock Turner and his unjust judge? God will ultimately judge him fairly. God is a just judge. Men are unjust, but God is holy and perfectly just. And he will judge all sin rightly, Thus, God's wrath is stored up for Brock as well as the
1: unjust judge. But you see, here's the problem, folks. Here's the crux of the problem that we overlook. Uh, In our sin, we're the guilty party here, and we're the unjust judge. We We very easily overlook our own sin.
0: We give ourselves unjust sentences. In our minds, we disregard our sin and we acquit ourselves. If we consider sin at all, we brush it aside as no big deal. Not thinking about how
1: a holy God would judge it. this is me too. When I think wrong thoughts and I say wrong things and then I quickly dismiss it. Jesus was was clear. Every lustful thought,
0: adultery. Every biting word or thought in anger, murder. Every self-righteous thought or word, a lie. And God's wrath is stored up for these. And He will not overlook our sin. And He will not clear the guilty. The penalty for sin must be paid. God is a holy and righteous judge. And the price will be paid one way or another. And that's the good news. There's rescue from the wrath of God. God's anger is laid up for your sin he's merciful and he's slow to bring that judgment he loves with an everlasting love so He sent his son Jesus who laid down his life he endured the shame and he took the wrath of God
1: for sin he took it that we might be saved but we're responsible for our sin And we
0: must turn from it and repent from our sin, admitting our guilt, admitting that we deserve the wrath of God, and cry out to the Lord that He will forgive us and we surrender our whole lives to Him. And by His grace alone, in that faith alone, in Christ alone, Will receive the gift of Jesus' righteousness and eternal life. Only then,
1: only then are we transformed from enemy to covenant people. Only then
0: is the omnipotent Holy God fighting our greatest enemy, our own sin. God crushes the enemy of fleshly desire, destroying every stronghold of sin in our lives, redeeming and avenging us with his sacrifice. He is
1: the avenging God for his own people. Let's pray.